It is truly a gift to be in worship with you at Central Bearden today, partly because I got to be here with my friend Shally. I guess organizationally he's right. I'm technically his boss. But in reality, Shally has served Jesus in the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship a lot longer than I have, and in ways that have required incredible faith and courage from him and his wife Maha. And so I am grateful to you at Central Bearden for your support of Shally and Maha, for your participation in their ministry through being present with them, by praying for them, by supporting their ministry directly financially, and also through your support for the offering for global missions. Your world mission offering result that was shared, let no one say Central Bearden is entering this time of transition in a place of weakness or uncertainty. That was an incredible news that was shared. And as one of the ministry partners who will benefit through the generosity of this congregation, I say thank you on Shawi's behalf, on behalf of his colleagues around the world, and on behalf of the many other ministry partners, Baptists and otherwise, who will benefit from that generosity. I have known and respected Central Bearden for some time. Wade Bibb is a friend. Wade was courageous and risky enough to invite me to preach here when I was three weeks into this new job of mine, and you all still invited me back. That's remarkable. But your church has been leaders in the life of Tennessee CBF and CBF around the world for so many years, and I am so grateful. One way I'm going to show my gratitude for that is by not making any further denominational commercial this morning. You've been here when types like me have come before, haven't you? But we are gathered on a really important Sunday in the life of this congregation. You are beginning a new journey. Last Sunday, you filled this sanctuary, which in Baptist life on New Year's Eve is remarkable. To offer thanks to God for Wade and his ministry and to make this turn toward a new season. And miraculously, many of you are back today. And you are beginning together to step into what God has for you next. And as I prayed and reflected on how we would encounter the Word of God today, it occurred to me that a text we often hear at this time of year from the second chapter of Matthew could be used by the Holy Spirit to speak in significant ways to where you are as a congregation today. And so without any further delays or acknowledgments, I'm going to invite you to hear a reading from the second chapter of Matthew's Gospel, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to this reading from God's Word. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. 
in Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report back to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming into the house. They saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. As I have reflected on this text this week, I have found myself wondering, is there a chance that the Holy Spirit might have a word for the people of Central Bearden on the first Sunday of their new journey? And is there a chance that the Holy Spirit would use the Magi as instruments to bring that word? Now, that's a question that's going to take some getting used to because I know you all well enough to know that you study the Bible well enough to know there are at least some of you in this room who have heard some pretty disparaging things said about the Magi. You can find some really reputable commentators and scholars who will tell you there's a chance that these Magi were the worst kind of astrologers. One commentary I read written by a Baptist, no less, can you believe that? One commentary written by a Baptist dared to describe the Magi as beguiling frauds. Well, just to prove to you that I'm also a Baptist, I want to have an argument with that Baptist. And I want to ask that Baptist who said that these Magi might be just beguiling frauds, does it seem like the activity of frauds to see a vision, disrupt your whole life, travel hundreds of miles by foot at great risk, to then take even more risk to search for a child you believe has been born to be the king of the Jews. Risk, sacrifice, those aren't qualities that usually show up on the, uh, in the character of beguiling frauds. But if that argument's not persuasive, the best way to settle a dispute among Baptists is to let the Bible settle it, right? And the best thing to do is to allow the, the New Testament to be read in light of the New Testament, the gospel to be read in light of the gospel. And I, 
one of the risks of preaching in a church like this is I know you all know the end of the story. I know what, you know what happens at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, right? This, J, this same Jesus born in Bethlehem is standing before his disciples, and he gives them a great commission to go into all the world and preach the Gospel among all nations. So this Gospel ends with a push to the whole world, with a push to the Gentiles. Should we be surprised at all that this Gospel then begins with Gentiles coming to Jesus in the holiest kind of impulse to be in his presence and to worship him in sincerity. Mark, I've been wondering all week since I saw the order of worship if that anthem the choir sang so beautifully that apparently it's been singing since the early 90s might not even work as the testimony of the Magi. When I gaze into the night skies, and see the work of your fingers, the moon and stars suspended in space. And when the Magi find themselves in the presence of the child on their faces worshiping, couldn't they not be singing, oh Lord our God, little children praise you perfectly and so would we, alleluia. I don't believe these Magi or beguiling frauds. I believe they are the sincere Gentiles drawn to the presence of Christ at the very beginning of a gospel that will end with the church being sent to all the nations to reach even more who long in their hearts an encounter with Jesus Christ, Son of God. So I give that to you at no extra charge this morning, just in case there are any of you in the room who are struggling with the notion that the Holy Spirit might have something to teach us through the Magi as you stand at the beginning of this new season of transition in the life of Central Bearden. If the Holy Spirit was going to teach you something through the Magi, it makes sense to me that we might begin with the words of the Magi. Here again, we're Baptists, we should be listening to their testimony, right? Well, what was the testimony that they offered Herod? They said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when, it's ro when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Their testimony is not, we always dreamed of coming to Jerusalem, so we took this trip. This trip was on our bucket list, you know. No, that wasn't their testimony. Their testimony was not that like so many people, Shawi and Maha encounter, there was a tyrant ruling in our part of the world, and so we had to flee to somewhere else to find safety and welcome and strength. No, ironically, they left a part of the world where they might not be a tyrant, and they find themselves standing right in the presence of one. They're not anxious. They're not afraid. They're not fleeing persecution. They're not in a hurry. Their testimony is, we saw his star when it rose, and when we saw his star and we understood what it meant, we then set out on this journey that brings us into your presence, Herod. So by their testimony, they teach us that the most powerful journeys of faith do not begin in anxiety. They do not begin by rushing. 
They do not begin in fear. They begin when God's people see a vision. And those powerful journeys of faith are oriented in response to the vision. We saw and then we moved. Which means these magi, whatever else you make of them, were people whose lives were filled with the kinds of practices and beliefs and habits that allowed them to see a vision and understand the vision and then respond to the vision. I wonder if the Holy Spirit might be using the testimony of the Magi to say to you at Central Bearden on this first Sunday of what Nick decided is a season of change, to say, don't be in a rush. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. Except for confidentiality, I could give you all kinds of examples of things that go badly when the first question a church asks in a time of transition is, how fast can we find a preacher? The most important question for a church at the beginning of a time of transition is how do we put ourselves in a place where we can see a vision that will motivate us to respond with courage and faith and boldness? What are the habits? What are the practices? What are the prayer practices? How do we listen to Scripture? How do we ask the questions? Who is God calling us to be? What is God calling us to do? How can we orient ourselves so that when the star appears, we can set off? The most powerful journeys of faith do not begin in panic. Nick mentioned we came from Athens. Widespread panic is the name of a band founded in Athens. It is not the name of a church transition strategy. I know Wade used to use pop cultural references, so I tried to throw that in just for him and for you. The most powerful visions, excuse me, the most powerful journeys of faith begin when God's people see a vision. So what will you do in these days to make space, to pray, to listen to one another, to listen to the scriptures? You would be well to set a time for that kind of prayer and worship and study because that's where you'll find the habits that allow you to see the vision when it comes. So having heard the testimony of the Magi, I want us now to follow the example of the Magi in two ways. Notice, first of all, by the example of the Magi, that their journey of faith requires risk. How else would you describe their leaving their home country and coming to the other side of the world? That's risky. And by the way, they, they didn't fly out of any airport. Uh, good decision, by the way, Shally. But I mean, they, they, they didn't fly out of any airport. 
They didn't take any car or any boat. They traveled on land. And since we don't know exactly where they came from, anybody who tells you they know exactly how far they traveled needs to be uh, disbelieved. But let's, we can imagine that this journey from one part or another of the, of the world to another would have taken time. And that they're clearly like Abraham, people who left the place they knew to go to a place they did not know. That's risky. New place, new people, new habits, new customs, it's unfamiliar. That's definitely risk. And then when they get there and they're face to face with the tyrant Herod, they eventually have to risk challenging the tyrant. If you're looking for a fraud in the text, it would be Herod. But that's another sermon for another time. We don't have enough time for that one too. But these magi, having already risked everything to make the journey, then have to risk disobeying his orders to return to their own country by another road because if they go on their original road, they'll go right past Herod and they'll have to answer to him and they don't want to. That's risk. We don't know each other very well, but I feel an obligation to tell you the truth today that these new journeys of faith, such as the one you are setting out on, will almost certainly require some risk. It'll almost certainly require some willingness to change. It'll almost certainly involve some kinds of challenge. If that surprises you, just remember the Magi. But but this part of the Magi's example reminds me, uh, back when I was the pastor at First Baptist Athens, we took our deacons on a retreat. And I led a Bible study from the early chapters of Acts on leadership lessons from the, from the New Testament that could guide our church's life together and our life as church leaders. And we were dwelling on the part in Acts 3 and 4 where the disciples of Jesus are known because they're so bold. They take risks. They're bold. They challenge the authorities. They say what they believe even though it's not going to be received well. And, 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 I, and I really drilled that point home as preachers are sometimes want to do. And then I asked the deacons, who who has a response to this that we're talking about so far? And one of the deacons raised his hand, and he said, well, what's what's on my mind is there's a huge difference between boldness and recklessness. And I'll have to confess that when he first made that statement, I thought he was coming to terms with what I'm asking y'all to come to terms with, which is like, New journeys of faith oftentimes require risk and change and challenge, and we're change-resistant people, and we don't like it. And so if we can somehow re-narrate it so that the risk becomes reckless, then we have a reason not to take the risk, right? But the longer I've lived, I decided he was smarter than I, I was at the time. Because he was holding up a truth that I've seen played out time and time and time again. There is a difference in the life of the church between bold risk-taking and recklessness. And the most familiar way I see that difference played out is that a congregation risks boldly when it decides together, overwhelmingly, to chart out on a new journey. 
things get sideways and reckless when two or three people decide to impose their will on a congregation and have some meeting in the parking lot that results in an imposition of will that a congregation gets dragged into something that it didn't say yes to, it didn't pray its way to, it didn't choose. That's reckless. I'm so pleased to report to you today that I get to see so many Baptist congregations that are in boldness taking courageous risks for the sake of their mission and their ministry, and I praise God for their courage. And unfortunately, I still get called in where there's some recklessness. I'd love to come back to Central Bearden anytime. The worship here is incredible. Don't get me called back here because there's recklessness. I want to come admire the boldness of the disciples at Central Bearden, just like the New Testament admires the boldness of Peter and John in Acts 3 and 4, and just like we're admiring the boldness of the Magi this morning. I believe this new season could involve risk and courage and boldness, and if it doesn't, you should ask yourself, is God really speaking? But you'll know God's really speaking when it's not just two or three who hear it, but it's an overwhelming consensus in the congregation. And then this, the Magi give us an example of boldness. They also give us an example of giving gifts. They open their treasure chest, gold, frankincense, myrrh. I think the Holy Spirit is not just saying to you all today, move in response to vision or be open to holy risk-taking. I think the Holy Spirit might also be asking you, what gift are you willing to bring? Baptist church is not a spectator sport, even though this moment might give the impression that it is. The worship life of a church The life of a church is a participatory event where we are all called upon to open our treasure chest and bring the gifts that God has given each of us. And no one in this room can say to me today that they do not have a gift. Because the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians, to each the Holy Spirit gives gifts. Not to some, there's no footnote, there's no accept calls, there's no rider. I know there's some attorneys in the room. There is none of the above. To each. Each of us have gifts. And if this church is going to take the next step into God's bold dream, we're going to all have to open our chest and give the gifts that we have, whatever they are, be they time, be they intellect, be they service, be they financial. We're going to all have to bring our gifts. And I say that at this moment in your life together because I have observed a pattern in congregations. It goes back to at least the early 90s when the choir started singing that anthem. Sometimes during interims, people say, and maybe you'll hear this in the corridor, in the hallway, somewhere, the parking lot, We'll wait and see who they call before we do anything else. I got news to you. At the end of this journey, uh, the church is going to make a decision. I'll never forget. 
I lived in Richmond for a couple of years while I worked at a seminary there, and I joined a church, a Baptist church in Richmond, right as their pastor was retiring. And they called an interim pastor who was a teacher of mine, ended up being a predecessor of mine named Cecil Sherman. Some of you have heard of Cecil. He was a Texas Baptist preacher by training. He didn't believe in nonsense, and he didn't believe in being misunderstood. So when he stood up early in that interim to preach in that church, one of his early sermons was, um, what does this interim require from us? And he said in a Texas drawl that I will not try to impersonate because Shally will call me out. During this time of transition, we are called to come to church, pray for the church, give to the church, and serve the church. In other words, we're called to open our treasure chests. And he said that it was a, it was a well-educated, sophisticated congregation who, you probably heard of congregations with big egos. This one qualified. He said, you all are probably thinking to yourselves, that doesn't sound very sophisticated. Come to church, pray for church, serve to the church, give to the church. But it's more than most of us are doing. Those Texans. If you want to offer a compelling witness in this community and around the world, don't wait. But follow the example of the Magi and open the treasure of whatever gifting God has given you and pour it out as an expression of gratitude and an act of worship. What gifts will you bring? What holy risk will you take? What vision? Well, you see, and don't miss this, don't miss this. I've saved the most important thing for last, and I should probably stop now, but I can't, because if I stop now, I've left out the heart of the gospel. If you just take the first 21 and a half minutes of what I said, you could walk away out from here with the, con the confusion, this is all up to you all. But reflect on the text the students read. And reflect on the text that I read. The Magi went on this journey in response to an act of God. And they were sustained on that journey by the protection of a God who was at work among them to do abundantly far more than anything they could ever ask or imagine. So the gospel I give you this morning as you begin this new journey is you are not alone. It doesn't just depend on you, but the God who appealed to the Magi so long ago, the God who sent Jesus into the world, the God who has gathered and guided this congregation for so many years, that God is already moving. The Holy Spirit is already at work. There is a vision already being born and a star that is rising. And the only question is, will you see it and step in?
Amen.